Let us pray. God, now we have read your word. May we receive it by the power of your Holy Spirit now and be changed, be transformed to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week we started this series called The Letter of Grace, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and we began by looking at his greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way in which that one greeting, that one phrase that he repeats in other letters as well, sets the stage for all that is to follow. It lays the foundation on which the rest of this letter of Ephesians is built. And so we come today looking at Ephesians chapter 2 and the way that that grace and peace comes and is applied to each one's life. Chapter 2 begins with a rather stark diagnosis that Paul gives of the human condition. Dead. Not sick, not ill, not broken, not misunderstood. Dead. Understanding that truth of the human condition is where we begin to understand as well the remedy which God has given in Jesus Christ. John Piper put it this way. The reason we need a savior is not that we just are in the doghouse with God and we need to be forgiving for offending his laws. We need a savior because we're in the morgue. In the doghouse, you might whimper. You might say you're sorry. You might make some good resolutions. You might decide to cast yourself on the mercy of God. But what can you do for yourself when you're in the morgue? Paul explains what he means by this diagnosis. He says that we are dead in our sin because we are following our own passions and the ways of the world. He's pointing out to them, you were all once in this way. They followed the desires of the flesh and became children of wrath, that is, enemies of God. That's what dead looks like. Death in a theological sense is life without God. Indeed, the epitome of death is hell. And the torture of hell is the absence of the presence of God. Many people still maintain the idea of the suffering of hell being about the lake of fire or about the worms devouring one's flesh. But the deepest sense of pain and misery in hell is the absence of the presence of God. That's death. But how does that relate to us today? Does any of Paul's description of what it means to be dead resonate with you? Following the course of this world in the passions of our desires and of our flesh. The people in Ephesus who were first reading this letter, many of them might have been uh, converts from the cult of Artemis. We said last week there was an enormous temple to Artemis, the goddess of fertility that was in Ephesus A core practice of that cult was to indulge the sexual desires of the people of that cult. Does this ring any bells in America today? The stench of death is all around us, friends. And even in our sanctuary this morning. I found a little letter to an advice columnist in Slate magazine that really captures the essence of the stench that is around us in the lives of people. Dear Carrie, she writes, I have it all. Life has been good. Though by no means rich, I have money in the bank, a solid marriage, and prospects for a comfortable future. 
but I'm happier when I have less. This life has numbed me into not feeling happiness. I have everything, and instead of being happy, I feel like a glutton. Most people would trade their life in a minute for mine. I have, it seems, done everything the right way or at least had timing on my side. What is wrong with me? I've become uninterested. It's like having too much of your favorite ice cream. At some point, it's going to make you sick and you'll turn away from the next spoonful. I have to figure out what to do before I wreck what I've worked to get. I'm not superstitious in the least. I cannot say to myself with any credulity that if I don't appreciate what I'll have, I'll lose it. And by the way, my story doesn't have a higher power to whom you can lay blame or give credit. Volunteering helps, but I need to find the long-term solution. Any ideas? Me, from my blue heaven. Most of the sentiment of this person's letter is actually reflected in scripture as well. Does it surprise you? The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is that all of it, work, money, pleasure, everything that we chase after in this life is empty and a chasing after the wind, all of it. But I don't really need to give a whole lot of examples, I don't think, in this sanctuary today for that. Haven't we all experienced a little bit of that in our lives or maybe a lot of it in our lives? Have you ever worked really hard to get that promotion or make that team to attract that husband or that wife or build that family or buy that house or buy that other house or to earn that respect that was finally going to make you happy and fulfilled in life only to come to the top of the heap that you had envisioned and find that the view isn't so good from there either. So what do we do? We look for the next shiny thing that catches our eye and we start chasing that thing as if it would be the thing that would ultimately make us happy and fulfilled with our lives. But somehow, it always leaves us unsatisfied. Friends, I submit to you that at the center of this age of the living dead, both Paul's and ours, is this pursuit of things in our lives to fill the place of God, the God of grace and the God of glory whom we read about in Scripture. This is what humans have been doing throughout time, and we see it from Genesis to Revelation in Scripture, one of the most poignant places being Isaiah chapter 55, when the prophet asks, why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Why do we do that? What we're describing in this notion of death is also a partial definition of what sin is. Trying to replace God in our lives with something that is not God. That's giving our highest attention and highest priority to something other than the one who has loved us and created us. And sin in many ways works like addiction. It compels us over and over to take hit after hit, bigger and bigger each time. And each time, it, it gives the vain promise that it can give us something that it never can. It always promises something that it can't deliver. Joy, peace, happiness, security, love. That's what sin promises, and it never delivers. These things that we chase so hard that can only ultimately be found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
So do you ever ask yourself that question? Why do I spend so much time and attention and money on stuff that doesn't even satisfy anyway? Paul diagnosed it here in Ephesians. It's the culture of death. And it's all around, and because all of its meaning comes from those things that we consume and possess and ultimately pass away. One of my favorite illustrations of this state in which we find ourselves is what the great, I think it's the greatest music video of all time. Some of you might have seen it. Johnny Cash covered a song by Nine Inch Nails called Hurt. This may not be a Nine Inch Nails crowd. I don't know. Um, but when Johnny Cash covered this song and made this powerful video, one of the lines that is a refrain that Johnny Cash sings and in his inimitable way is, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. And he's sitting at a table with a feast set before him. And with a wave of his arm, Johnny Cash throws it off the table and onto the floor as if to emphasize that each of us, no matter how big or how small, no matter how much or how little, anything that we have apart from God in this life is an empire of dirt and nothing more. Paul's understanding of grace is born of that understanding of our human condition. But Paul pivots in verse 4 and begins a marvelous transition, a hinge that swings the whole message from darkness to light, from death to life, here in verse 4 with just two words. When he reads, when he writes, but God. The whole emphasis to this point has been on death and on darkness and on the despair of our condition. But God enters the scene and everything changes. Again, as a dead and dying people in a dead and dying world, we are reminded that God is in the business of resurrection, of changing from death to life. All seemed lost and death was all around, but God, we read in verse 4. Let's be clear, friends, that the God of whom we read in Scripture, whom we have found and who has found us in Jesus Christ, is not mute, is not deaf, is not paralyzed, but this is a God who is active in the world he has created. He enters into the mess of death in this world with his grace, and only his grace, by his grace, to not just suffer alongside of us, but to do something about the mess that we have made and in which we live. And that's good news. We read here that God has two characteristics primarily that Paul is lifting up that make this good news. He said, God who is rich in mercy, and God is, has great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And that's the good news. God's mercy and his love are defined by the fact that they are graciously given to those who do not deserve it. If we feel we have merited the love and the grace of God, we've missed the point entirely. On Wednesday night when we were uh, doing our Bible study after the video, I got to sit at a table with a bunch of middle school boys, and it was awesome. The insight, the wisdom from these guys about grace. And as I asked them, what, how would you define grace? Henry Tyndall was the one who got it exactly right. 
He said that grace is giving something to someone that doesn't deserve it. Giving something to someone, it's perfect. That's exactly what grace is. And so may we hear Paul's greeting again. Grace and peace to you. Remember that Paul wrote that death is following the course of this world. So life then must be following the course of our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is following the desires and the passions of our flesh. Life must then be denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus on the road as he leads us. And in verse 7, Paul says we will discover what he terms the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. The path to following, finding that kindness of God is by following Jesus. What a difference grace makes. Paul continues with those two most famous verses from Ephesians, probably. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Do you ever wonder why it feels so empty and dead when all we think we can do is to pursue our own sense of happiness and self-fulfillment? Why is that at the end of the day such an empty pursuit? It's because that's not what we're made for. That's not what God created us to be and to do. We look for the perfect relationship. We search for the perfect job. We buy the latest and greatest, the biggest and the best with all the upgrades, and we still feel empty. And there's a reason for that. It's not what we're made for. Paul writes that we are created in Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus to do good works. You can even hear it in that little letter to the advice columnist in Slate, this two-word throwaway sentence that was put in at the end, volunteering helps. It's a faint echo of the grace of God because it it, it is embedded in every human soul in some way or another. The idea of sacrificial service that seems like such a a lost idea in our culture today. But the idea of sacrificial service to a cause that is greater than our own self-interest is what we were created to be part of. Everything else that is about self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction is the way of death. It is the opposite of grace. Make no mistake about it. Scripture teaches that this is a matter of life and death, and we do have a choice to make. We can go along with following the desires of our flesh and of this world. There's certainly plenty of incentive to do that around us. Or we can receive the life of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the place, uh, there is a place for works in all of this too. Not separated from grace, but enabled by grace. Having received and experienced the grace of God, we turn around and share that grace with those around us. 
That is where our salvation lies, is in grace. It's not the fact that we're good people. It's not the fact that we feed the poor or clothe the naked or that we're nice or even that we believe so fervently that God saves us. It's a gift. A true, unmerited gift from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is purely the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when someone asks young Helen one day, when were you saved? She can rightly point to a cross on a hill 2,000 years ago before she was ever known to be on this earth to the one who gave himself in grace for the ones who would come thereafter. And she said, Jesus did that 2,000 years ago because of his grace. And to know that grace is to know the life that God gives us as a gift today. The life we were created to live from the very beginning. You know, in these passages of Scripture, one of the truest rules is that if you want to find out what's important, see what is repeated. And in these ten short verses, twice it is repeated by grace you have been saved. It is fundamental to understanding our relationship with God to understand grace. So the question comes to us. Are we ready to get out of the death race? Are we ready to stop pursuing the passions of our own flesh and of the culture around us? Are we really ready to embrace the grace that is ours? given in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, may we be invited, even as we have seen a new one washed in the waters of baptism today, even as the table is before us, may we embrace the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. And so, God, we come to you today, not by our own achievement or merit, not by our possessions or by what we have done for you, but solely because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, draw that grace deep into our lives. Plant that seed that will grow into the tree of righteousness, that we may know that it is not dependent upon us, but thanks be to you, our Lord and our God, for you have done it all. Lord, I pray for those today, even in this sanctuary, who find themselves running the race of death, chasing possessions and relationships and, and respect and honor, and trying to make themselves happy and fulfilled with everything except for you. I pray that you would draw them to yourself by your Holy Spirit today, that this would be a place where they decide to embrace the grace of Jesus Christ and to follow you. We love you, God, and thank you for your grace that is poured out upon us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our affirmation of faith today comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. Please rise with me as we affirm our Christian faith together.
What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen.